Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. What day is it, Adam? Thursday. Why do you ask? Just checking you know. Uh, why? Well, have a listen to this from Tuesday's episode. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 9th of June. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Oops, Thank you, Dave. it's been a long week. Actually, on Tuesday it hadn't been a long week yet, but it is now. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Thursday, and I definitely mean Thursday, the 11th of June. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. We bring you the news and some of the quirky things we've noticed about this global pandemic, and then we slow down to focus on one particular topic. Big night tonight. Why's that? I'm heading back to choir practice every Thursday, but haven't been for three months almost. Oh, see if you can bring us back a plague playlist offering. I shall. Maybe we could sing I Should Be So Lucky, because we are pretty lucky. Choir practices are all but non-existent all over the planet right now. There's a piece in the New York Times which explains why. It describes singing, especially indoors in enclosed spaces, as a really dangerous idea in the age of COVID. There are two risks. Droplets of saliva spraying from someone's mouth, similar to when they cough. Oh, gross. And then there's the aerosol particles, which are so small and light, they travel wherever the air currents take them. So, I mean, it's the same as talking. It's just that when you're singing, you're putting that much more welly into every breath and open your mouth wider and so on. In a poorly ventilated room, one scientist told the New York Times, there's a chance that someone's coronavirus-laced aerosols could reach you no matter how much distance you put between yourself and the sopranos. So our choir usually practices in a kind of semicircle, so we are all facing each other. And frankly, we get pretty excited on the high notes, and I imagine the aerosols would spread far and wide. So, just another reason to be grateful that there is no infection in New Zealand. I warned you what would happen if you sang again. What? What would happen? This. Thank you, big potato. Anyway, there is a real sense of things getting back to normal, isn't there? I went back into the office yesterday for the first time since March. It was quite nice to see lots of people, although it was a bit quieter than normal. It sort of felt like Christmas time. There were a few shops on Ponsonby Road that had folded, and I went along to get lunch at the Ponsonby Food Court, and the people there who work in the kebab place I regularly go to, well, they welcomed me most effusively. They said it had been really tough to survive, and we're glad that people were slowly coming back. I guess level one couldn't come soon enough for them. Speaking of level one, we've got some news. So with level two, we moved down from daily to twice a week. And we kind of feel that now that we're in level one, it's time to move down to once a week. The coronavirus story is obviously very far from over, even though New Zealand has come through it amazingly so far. But we figure it's time to scale back our coverage a bit. Yeah, as Adam says, don't worry, we won't be gone for good. You haven't got rid of us that easily. We're just going to concentrate on one really, really, really good episode. It'll come out on Thursday evenings. Later on today's show, we catch up with Dr. Sean Hendy to talk about second waves. He explains where New Zealand's weak points are and how community transmission could get away on us. But first, here's what's happening. New Zealand is just eight days away from successfully eliminating COVID-19. A new case hasn't been reported for 20 consecutive days now. Elimination is technically reached after 28 days, which is two incubation periods of no new cases. If no cases emerge in the next week, COVID-19 elimination will have been achieved. Cool. A report into the five rest home outbreaks in New Zealand has found that two of the outbreaks were associated with overseas travel and that three out of the five had staff cases before residents got infected. This confusing hot mess of who is allowed an exemption to come to New Zealand and who isn't just continues. 
New reporting from Stuff's Tom Hunt, who we had on the show the other day, and his colleagues have revealed that Immigration New Zealand has approved less than one quarter of the 1,400 requests for exemptions. Among those allowed in, though, was a relative of a film worker, but a transmission gully structural engineer who's been working on Wellington's billion-dollar roading project? Nope. The United States has just confirmed its two millionth case. Brazil has the next highest with 772,416, followed by Russia, 493,000, and the UK, 292,000. The worldwide total is 7.3 million. One of the main things the government did to fend off the economic ills of the coronavirus was to roll out a wage subsidy scheme. The initial scheme was a 12-week, $11.9 billion fund to help businesses keep staff employed. It covers around half of all working-age adults in the country, 1.6 million people. And full disclosure, our company, Stuff Limited, received $6.3 million on behalf of 907 employees. And it's transparency we want to talk about today because Stuff National Correspondent Katie Kenny has an excellent story this morning headlined, The Vague and Confusing Reasons Will Never Know Exactly Where the Wage Subsidy Is Going. Welcome, Katie. Hello, thank you for having me. Can we just start with the basics? When the wage subsidy scheme was announced, what was the impression that was given about transparency? Uh, The scheme was initially announced mid-March, I think, and around early April, the government said that they would eventually make the names of the subsidy recipients public to help keep employers honest and to let employees check whether their bosses had applied for the subsidy on their behalf. There was a big thing made of the transparency that that online search tool would bring because there's just such a lot of money at stake. You know, it's an 11-odd billion dollar scheme. Um, So it was important that the public would be able to have some kind of insight into how that money was was being spent and where it was going. So you jumped onto this searchable database and and had a look. What What did you find out? So you can type in the name of a company or even, you know, like certain keywords uh, and it will come up saying how many employees they have applied on behalf of and how much they've received from the government. When you type in a very general term like um, electrician or plumber, which would normally you'd expect get a lot of hits, the search engine limits the results to five at a time. So we basically went to the Ministry of Social Development and asked for just a full list of the recipients of the wage subsidy, just the database that was basically feeding this online tool. And we were told that that wasn't possible for privacy reasons, which, which was confusing because that information was technically already publicly available via the search tool. It just would mean that we would have to sit there and type in the name of every single New Zealand company in order to get the same results. So what were the reasons they gave you about why they couldn't just give you the whole database? It was pretty confusing, which which is why I titled, <laughs> I titled the piece the way I did. But basically, the ministry came back and said that they hadn't named on the, the database or on the search tool employers with three or fewer employees, and that was for privacy reasons. So if you search a, a self-employed person who doesn't employ anyone else who applied for the subsidy on their own behalf, their name will not come up in the in the search tool. So we said, okay, well, if their name won't come up in the search tool, then those details have already been redacted anyway. Why can't we have the list that's feeding the search tool, if not like the full list of, of recipients? But then the issue turned out to be the fact that sole traders who employ more than three people do appear in the search tool results. But if we were to be given a list 
of all of the recipients, they would have to manually redact all of those sole traders. And I know that sounds really confusing, and it is, like it is really confusing and doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The reason that they gave was that the way that a sole trader business, which is basically the easiest type of business structure to set up means that more personal details are kind of associated with the business records. And so they would be breaching the sole trader's privacy if if they release their details on a list as well. Even though companies of the same size, say with like five employees, their details would be provided to us on on a list. So that's where stuff started to get like a little bit tricky. And we initially asked why, and eventually they sort of name checked the privacy commissioner and said that this was all for, for privacy reasons. So we went back to the office of the privacy commissioner who said they did recommend that individuals, self-employed people, didn't have their details on the public register for the sake of protecting their personal privacy. But they didn't offer any advice about larger companies, including sole trader companies who employ more than three people. That is very confusing, isn't it? And there was a line in the response which really jumped out to me, the deputy chief executive of the MSD told you, we are conscious that for some there is a stigma around receiving government support. Did that surprise you? Uh, it did, I guess. I spoke on background with a um, an individual business owner who employs just a couple of people. So who, who is one of one of the people that whose names isn't publicly available on the on the register. And he's young and he he sort of didn't feel like there there was a stigma attached to it, you know. But um I do understand kind of from from a safety perspective, some people might not want the details there. But the other thing to keep in mind is that you anyone can look up the company's register and see kind of the address of and, and details of, of owners and, and shareholders. So I think a lot of what the ministry is relying on is people like not not going to a lot of effort and that and that sort of that helps kind of maintain some of those privacy expectations. But but yeah, I think that's an interesting conversation to have around the stigma argument and I'm probably not in a position to comment on whether I would feel stigmatized. I'm entirely unqualified, but I'm going to comment. It feels to me like there is just no stigma whatsoever associated with your business suffering the entirely predictable consequences of the government shutting down the economy. I mean, if government says people can't come to your restaurant, it's okay to take some money from the government to pay the people and so on and so on. It's just, that just strikes me as completely nuts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're putting it, but basically the Privacy Commissioner's Office was was putting it in the same camp as ACC entitlements and sickness benefits and accommodation supplements and unemployment benefits. And I mean, it's, you know, it's valid to ask whether there should be stigma associated with any of those kinds of things, because, you know, they all have valid reasons and and people shouldn't necessarily feel ashamed of receiving them. But no, that's a fair comment, Adam. Mm. So after doing all this digging, where do you land on how transparent the system actually is? I was surprised. I didn't even realise that individuals and, you know, very small businesses with fewer than three employees weren't appearing on the online search tool. And I thought that maybe I just kind of missed some sort of announcement that that was the case. But I talked to a privacy lawyer who was also unaware that that was the case. And, you know, other people who simply didn't know that we weren't getting the full picture. And I do understand that there are valid privacy reasons for maybe redacting those details. But I think what New Zealanders don't realise is that a really, really significant portion of the recipients of this huge wage subsidy will never, ever be known. And about 97% of businesses who have applied and, and been given the subsidy so far 
have fewer than 20 employees, which is totally expected because New Zealand is a country of small businesses. Small businesses employ 30% of our working age adult population. But, you know, there's been a lot made of, of the big law firms and, and the larger companies who, who might be taking advantage. And I think we've sort of thought, well, you know, that the small businesses are just small fry. And, and on a case-by-case basis, they are, but they make up the bulk of the of, of the people receiving this money, which is a huge amount of money. And I think the sole trader thing is odd. And, you know, the fact that there isn't a really accessible way for news media and other other people who have a, a really decent amount of public interest and in, in being able to properly analyse this information, the fact that, that we're not given information, which is already, you know, mostly public anyway, is it just goes against any kind of values of transparency, I think. Thank you very much for joining us, Katie Kenny. No problem. Thanks for talking to me. For the longest time now, like since before we went into lockdown, we've been comparing ourselves to Australia in terms of our response to the virus, haven't we? And long, long before that, of course, we've compared ourselves to Australia on the sporting fields and courts and courses and all those other places that sports singers done. Now, those things collide. This weekend, as I'm sure you know, Adam, the Aotearoa Super Rugby competition kicks off with full crowds expected at stadiums from Forsyth Bar in Dunedin to Eden Park in Auckland. The teams were preparing to play in front of empty stadiums, but Monday's announcement of a swift move to Level 1 changed all that, and tickets to the matches went on sale faster than you could say Bowden Barrett is a traitor. I don't think that, of course, you know, go you good, beautiful thing. What are you even talking about? Anyway, across the Tasman, Australian sporting leagues have been getting going again. The Rugby League NRL competition has had two weeks of spectatorless matches. But there are strict controls in places, so strict in fact, the players are in really tight quarantine. Benji Marshall, who's a Kiwi who plays for the Tigers, is in trouble because he kissed a journalist on the cheek at what was supposed to be a physically distanced press conference. Wait, so are we still talking league or Tiger King? League. Now, look, I'll get to the point. Whereas Marshall has to stay in isolation until the journalist is tested for COVID-19, Within the AFL, which is Aussie Rules, their other Australian sport, they're pushing the limits. South Australia has given permission for a crowd of about 2,000 to attend an Aussie Rules match in Adelaide on Saturday. And that's led to people saying, well, why not allow all mass gatherings all over Australia like we have here in New Zealand under Level 1? Anyway, the Science Media Centre from Australia sought reaction from experts about all this, and there were some really interesting opinions. Professor John Watson, Dean of the Faculty of Health Medical Sciences at the University of Western Australia, said, look, the evidence we have suggests that 1.5 metres is a safe distance apart to reduce the risk of transmission of the virus. Interesting, that's 1.5 metres rather than the New Zealand 2 metres that we'd been working with. Mm. Anyway, however, this is going to be difficult, says Watson, to achieve at sporting events and in community sport. But this is about weighing up risks, he says. He reckons with the risk of community transmission very low in Australia and good systems for testing and tracing in place, it's worth the risk. The benefits to Australia are higher than the risk. But others are not so sure. Professor Eckhard Platten from the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, says, look, Australia is on the verge of eliminating community transmission, which would align it with New Zealand. Why risk all that now? Professor Platten goes on to say, our modelling shows that the probability to achieve elimination within the next two weeks changes from almost certain to not at all likely if one does not maintain sufficient social distancing until then. The economic and social gain from allowing a selected group of fans to enjoy a match now as a crowd and not in front of a TV screen 
seems not to offset the potential economic gains that the elimination of the disease would bring for our country. Dr Tom Heenan, who lectures on sport at Monash University, is even more blunt. He calls the messaging around public gatherings muddle-headed, I like that phrase, and he's scathing of the AFL clubs, saying they, quote, seem to think they have acquired their own type of herd immunity. Football is not immune. And he goes on, This is not the time to roll the COVID dice. To introduce crowds, no matter how small, only muddles the message that no herd, not even the AFL and NRL tribes, are immune from this virus. Yeah, it feels pretty good, doesn't it, that with our petty younger cousin mentality about Australia, knowing we'll be able to sit in the stands on the weekend, should we choose, with the approval of none other than the Director General of Health and Hurricanes fan, Dr Ashley Bloomfield. So has he caught it in the news that Geordie's out with a shoulder injury? Wait, what? Is this the time to mention something that just uh, came to my attention earlier? So there was someone talking about, in a piece I was reading, someone was talking about the difference between elimination and eradication of the virus. So elimination means it's not regionally here. Eradication means it's gone from the planet like smallpox. What's kind of interesting, though, is if you look at the etymology, eliminate is from think, the Latin for limin or something like that, which means... Uh, doorway, so eliminating something is getting it out the door, whereas eradicate has got the same etymology as the, like the word radish or radical, which is all to do with the roots. So eradication is tearing it out by the roots. Oh, it's kind of interesting. We've kicked it out the door. Mm. Eventually the world might tear it out by the roots. Interesting. Anyway, email inbox. Yes, an email in the virus pod at stuff.co.nz inbox from Susan Merriman. She says she has thoroughly enjoyed the podcast. Great news. Thanks, Susan. Now, Susan has an idea. It's another investigation to follow up WTF, and it revolves around this question. By late May, there were a reported 50,000 overseas tourists still in New Zealand. So Susan asks, why not keep those tourists and their dollars here? And she's thought it through. Wouldn't it be interesting to investigate the possibility of the economic impact of their spending continuing if their visitors' visas were to be extended by one year from expiration during this period of border closures? There is much anticipation of the trans-Tasman bubble potential for the economy, but has any consideration been given to these risk-free tourists who are safely here, having participated in the fight against COVID as part of the team of 5 million? Now look, Susan's not saying it would be compulsory. They can still go home if they want. Good news. But if they're keen to stay and have the funds to hang in there, why not let these tourists linger longer? Splashing their cash around in our cafes and transport systems, attractions and accommodation and all those sorts of things. Susan then reveals a bit of self-interest. She writes, We are early retirees from the US who have fallen in love with this great country of New Zealanders during our eight months here. We would love to stay another year spending money every day to continue supporting New Zealand in our small way. Okay, here goes. The investigation begins. Adam, do you think this is a good idea? Yes, I do. Okay, our investigation is complete, Susan. It's an excellent idea. If the Minister of Immigration is listening... And no doubt he is. We would encourage him to make it so. Go on, Ian Lees Galloway. What are you waiting for? Plague playlist. Well, like I said on Tuesday, we're running out of material. But by broadening the definition of plague playlist, I think we can just hang in there by our fingertips. And last night, I saw a tweet that should get us out of this hole. So bear with me, it gets a bit complicated. So the tweet is by someone called Andrew Burns, and he says... This post by Jacinda Ardern from 2014 is going off on Facebook with people calling for a repeat to celebrate the end of COVID in NZ. A repeat of what, you may ask, but the accompanying screenshot makes things a bit clearer. It's a screen grab from Jacinda Ardern's Facebook account for January the 28th, 2014. 
2014, what was Jacinda Ardern up to back then? Well, she had been in Parliament for six years on the Labour Party list. But at this point in time, it's safe to say she was still more of a rising star than darling of the international left and COVID-19 heroine, as she is now. And she evidently wasn't quite as busy as she is these days, because she still had a little bit of time for her second career as a DJ, which is why the Facebook post from Ardern from 2014 reads, quote, Been asked what I played at Laneway, so here it is, exclamation mark. And what follows is the set list of the 13 songs that the up-and-coming parliamentarian and vinyl spinner evidently queued up and mixed and, I don't know, did that scratchy-scratchy thing while holding one side of a pair of headphones to a head at the same time at the Laneway Festival. Okay, so there are 13 songs on the list, but we don't have time nor the copyright permission to play them all and you're sure as hell not going to sing them all, so what are we going to hear? Well, I'm kind of torn. As far as I can tell from a quick glance, they it looks like they're all covers. And some of them pretty quirky. So we've got Sid Vicious singing My Way, The Gossip doing Wham's Careless Whisper, The Mint Chicks covering the Ray Columbus classic She's a Mod, even Tom Jones having a crack at a bit of Iggy Pop with his version of Lust for Life. So I've struggled to find any sort of COVID-19 relevance to any of them, so we can actually cause the play playlist. But anyway, in the end, I've settled on a little bit of this. Time, she said, I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. I want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. Oh, what is that? It is William Shatner, of course, doing a truly dreadful spoken word cover of the Jarvis Cocker classic, Common People. As I said, like all the rest of them, it has absolutely nothing to do with coronavirus nor New Zealand. Though actually I guess musical covers are a kind of replication and viruses are nature's replicators, so there's that. As COVID-19 started to hit the headlines early this year, New Zealand media went looking for people who knew what was going on and were also able to explain the science of it all to the public, you know, so your Susie Wileses and your Michael Bakers and Nick Wilsons and Michelle Dickinsons and so on. And one of those people we suddenly heard a lot from was Dr. Sean Hendy. He's a physics professor at Auckland University, and physics isn't necessarily the first department you'd call if you wanted to learn more about a viral pandemic. But Dr. Hendy is also director of Auckland University's Te Punaha Matatini. And it was with that hat on that he started warning New Zealand about exponential growth and producing models that projected terrifying death tolls if we did nothing. And Dr. Hendy is with us now. Hi, Sean. Hi. So just briefly, what is... Te Punaha Matatini, and why has it become one of the focal points of New Zealand's COVID-19 expertise? It certainly was sort of a bit surprising for us to find ourselves in this position. We are one of the 10 centres of research excellence. So every six years or so, the Tertiary Education Commission has a funding round and it funds 10 or so of these centres around the country. And the idea is to sort of build excellence in certain areas of, of research and science. We came into life in 2015 and our approach, you know, we were trying to be a little bit different about how you built a centre like this. We really wanted to be a very multidisciplinary centre. So Tapunaha Matatini quite literally stands for the meeting place of many faces. And so, you know, that sort of represents the different disciplines coming together. You know, we have people like me who are physicists, we have computer scientists, mathematicians, but then we also have biologists, people who do work on infectious disease, work in public health, 
economists. There's a big range of different types of research expertise in the centre. You know, it's a slight play on words because Matatini many faces is also a metaphor for complexity, for, for complex systems. And so that's kind of what we're interested in. We're interested in complex systems, you know, systems that form when you've got lots of different interacting entities. Those systems include people, they include ecosystems, they include the economy. We don't necessarily have a core area that we focus on, but we're interested in, in looking for how complex systems behave in these different domains. I guess the other important thing is we're actually distributed around the country. So while I'm at University of Auckland and University of Auckland is our host organisation, we've got researchers right around the country. And so it's not as if you were sitting there waiting for a pandemic per se, you were analysing other things as well. Yeah, I mean, we have been looking at infectious disease. Uh, so we, you know, most recently, we've been involved in the MBOVIS eradication program, working with MPI, not incredibly dissimilar to what we ended up doing with, with COVID. In 2016, we actually did have a series of conversations with, with the Ministry of Health about the need for a pandemic model. Like, what, you know, what would New Zealand do if there was a global pandemic? Like, did we have the models to, to cope with that? And the conversations, you know, they kind of petered out, you know, you sort of, I turned up to Wellington, I gave a talk, I said, look, this is all the stuff we could do. And they said, that was great, you know, <laughs> um, but don't call us, we'll call you. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I didn't, didn't hear from them. And I just assumed that that work, you know, that they must have chosen some other research centre to do that work. And that somewhere, somewhere in the country that, that work was being done. Um, but of course, it turned out that wasn't the case. The reason we got you on today is to talk about the idea of a, a second wave. And can we start at the real basics? First of all, what does a second wave mean? Yeah, so obviously in New Zealand, we've, we've, we've been quite successful in, in containing what, you know, that, that what we call the first outbreak. Um, and, and we've been so successful that, that actually only a very small fraction of the population has, has got the disease. So most of us haven't been exposed to it. Um, and that also means that... that uh, very few of us have any immunity. Now, we're still waiting on the science to tell us how long-lived our immune response might be, whether you can catch it a second time or not. Um, and, and so there's still a lot of uncertainty there. But let's assume that, that, that you know, if you have had it, then you do have some immunity. There's still very few of us that even in that kind of best-case scenario have had that immunity. So we're still actually what, what you'd call a vulnerable population. If, if, if we reopened our borders now, we'd find ourselves very quickly back in the situation we were in, in February. So that's the kind of thing we're, we're concerned about with the second wave. Now, of course, we're not going to just blanket open our borders because we, we've learned a few lessons um, about the disease and, and we're going to manage things at the border, hopefully, as, as carefully as we can. But it, it, it still doesn't mean, you know, even with our best efforts, there's still some risk of the disease coming across the border. And so I guess that second wave is the potential that we might have here in New Zealand for that re-incursion. There's still a tiny chance that there might still be some cases out there, but probably the largest risk comes from someone bringing it back um, from across the border. Effectively, you know, there's no immunity out there. It's just going to start spreading uh, much as it did in February and, and early March, and possibly even worse because we're going into winter and there's some evidence that it's more virulent in colder temperatures. Where do you think that... You know, we talk about the borders, but have you identified any particular weak points or areas of vulnerability? We've been looking at sort of a couple of different scenarios. You know, one is that um, perhaps it comes in through Auckland, right? I mean, Auckland is our biggest uh, port of call, you know, so if we were to sort of relax 
border restrictions in, in Auckland, maybe with countries that we think are relatively safe. We do also have people returning New Zealanders from other parts of the world. And so they've got to come through the airport. They're going to interact with airport workers. You know, even if they go into quarantine, there's staff working in those quarantine hotels. There's other passengers in quarantine. Um, so there's still there's still the risk of, of, of it getting passed on. The tricky thing with this disease has been uh, the possibility of asymptomatic um, transmission. So this is where people don't develop strong symptoms, maybe aren't aware that even that they've had the disease, but can still infect other people. And so there's still a risk that, you know, people coming in, they they don't realize they've been infected um, and and therefore are less cautious and other people around them are less cautious. And so then it gets passed on outside the quarantine facilities. You know, the person at the airport who's checked your arrival card, you know, goes home, passes it on to their family, and then we have community transmission again. You know, that's one kind of, of vulnerability. And the other one is someone comes in, they're, in, they're a Kiwi, you know, perhaps we get more relaxed about quarantine and uh, and they slip through and they fly down to Nelson, for example, or they're a tourist. And, we, and again, we're becoming um, more relaxed about tourism to get the economy started. And so that's a possibility as well. You and your colleagues released some work on inequality, which highlighted vulnerabilities in sectors of the community with less access to healthcare. What's the danger within those communities? One of the things that, and this has been seen really clearly overseas, in, in a you know in a couple of different scenarios, is people who um, maybe can't afford to to go into quarantine. So let's say you're working contract work, for example, you know, maybe you don't have um, a great sick leave entitlement, so you can't take time off work to go get the test and risk going into quarantine, right? Maybe you lose those contract hours, right? You're not, you're not going to um, be paid for that time off work. And so actually, if people are in that kind of that very economically fragile situation, you know, potentially you could get spread for a while. And again, this is not a disease that hits, hits everybody equally. You know, younger people doing uh, contract work who don't have um, sick leave, you could get a train of transmission that, that went on for some time before you detected it, um, before it did make someone sick enough to actually get symptoms and to actually go seek medical treatment. And that was the situation that, that kind of hit in Singapore. They've got a large migrant worker community. People live in dormitory precincts, which, which are quite crowded. And so actually that, you know, that they have very little ability to self-isolate. So even if they, they suspected they had symptoms, they effectively can't isolate themselves because they're living in a, in a um, you know, in a small flat with six other people. And so in Singapore, the disease spread has spread quite a lot um, in that migrant working community and caused a second wave there. I mean, luckily, that worker community is quite young and so it hasn't had a huge death toll, but still it shows how that could come in. You know, let's say we're looking at South Auckland, where again, we know we have a housing problem and people do suffer from over, overcrowded living conditions. Um, again, that could be, a, that could be potentially a, a vulnerability for New Zealand. Five days ago, I think it was, uh, Te Punaha Matatini said there's a 95% probability that COVID-19 has been eliminated in New Zealand. So with no more cases since then, that number must be even better than 95% by now? Yeah, look, we're heading up to a, to 100%. Basically, with our model, we, we run it, say, a thousand times, right? And we look at how many of those simulations, uh, each simulation, 
you know, look like the, the data that we've seen coming out of New Zealand. And then we look at how many of those simulations the disease has actually stopped propagating, right? I.e. in our simulation, there are no active cases. Right. We don't assume in those simulations that we know about all the cases. And so we've still got, you know, some of those simulations, there will still be transmission going on, but it hasn't been detected by the health system. You know, those those people in those simulations haven't gone to get the test or they haven't been picked up by the contact tracers. But as you go on, as we get more and more zero days, the chances of that, of those chains of transmission persisting without us detecting them get smaller and smaller. We've become a little bit obsessed, of course, as a country and as a podcast with R0, the reproduction number for the virus. Have you got a clear idea of what that would be at in New Zealand now? Once you get down to these zeros, <laughs> it, sort of, it, 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 it doesn't really, it's not a meaningful number. It's been a bit of a challenge, actually. You know, New Zealand's data has not been great for estimating our noughts. <laughs> so you've seen all these numbers from overseas where they've got thousands and thousands of cases and, and it does make it easier for them to look at our noughts. So we've tended to look at other countries that we think have been in similar lockdown conditions to us but maybe have higher case numbers to help us get a handle on our R noughts. You know, nonetheless, you know, looking back, we're sort of able to say before we went into lockdown, we had an R naught of somewhere between 1.8 and 2, right? So for every person who got infected or who brought back the disease from overseas, they were going on to infect between 1.8 and 2 people. And it's important to realize that actually that's just an average, <laughs> right? And, and actually most people were not infecting anyone else <laughs> or maybe just a family member. And then, we, of course, we had those super spreading events. But, you know, you do know that you need to get the average below one in order to contain the disease. So once we went into that level four lockdown, we think we had an R0 of between 0.3 and 0.4. Um, so that's, that's basically as effective as um, in Wuhan. So people remember... Um, back in January, February, that Wuhan was in that very strict lockdown. Um, and so based on our, our simulations, we think that, that New Zealand's lockdown was, was similarly effective to the Wuhan lockdown. Which is kind of good news because I remember reading the early Wuhan coverage that they abandoned the family isolation and were sort of whisking people off to isolation centres, which sounded sort of very intense and authoritarian and um, we managed to get the same result without having to go quite that far. That's right. You know, in our early work, we were pessimistic about whether we could achieve a lockdown that effective. We were thinking we'd have to be in lockdown for a longer period of time because we didn't think that our lockdown would be as effective. So it is. it was fantastic that in fact, in New Zealand, ours was as effective as Wuhan without seeming to be as authoritarian. So in the absence of a second wave, and while we're in this kind of holding pattern of zero cases, is your team just taking a well-earned break, or are you still busy modelling different scenarios? We're still busy modelling. It's becoming a little bit more like when we're doing normal science now. For a long period of time, we weren't asking our own questions, right, in the modelling, right? The questions were coming right. from the public or from policymakers, from the ministry. And so we're on a little bit of a longer leash now. We're still doing work for government, so we're still looking at some of these scenarios. We're looking at second wave possibilities. We're looking at trying to evaluate how effective different apps might be and also starting to think about border controls and how we might model that. But we're now in this phase of sort of a few more of those questions. We're asking them ourselves and we're thinking about writing them up for an international audience. You know, what can other countries learn from New Zealand? And that's a little bit more like normal science. A lot of our science, you know, you do write it for that international scientific audience. And so we're kind of a little bit back to that. 
Well, here's to life on a longer scientific leash for as long as possible. Dr. Sean Hendy, thanks very much for coming on the show. No problems. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 11th of June. I'm Adam Dudding, here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Katie Kenny, Sean Hendy, Alex Yu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. You really are getting faster and faster. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism financially, go to the link that's on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. Like we said at the top of the show, this is the last of our bi-weekly, or is that twice-weekly, whatever you call it. Anyway, shows. From next week, we switch to weekly episodes released on a Thursday evening. Yanda. Yanda.